Warning, in this episode of Mont Icons, we discuss issues and experiences that could trigger distress or traumatic memories for people, particularly survivors of war, sexual abuse, and violence. Yes, 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 yes. I first met Brace Belden when Total Control and UV Race were on tour in San Francisco. He was playing in a nihilistic punk band called War Crime. Whenever I was in America, I would stay with Brace, but we lost contact because of his drug addiction. Sometime later, I got a message from a mate saying, Brace Belden is now a communist and he's in Syria fighting ISIS. Like, I, I think that there is like a real like vacuum of, of anything to believe in. And so I think people have to like, believe in something that that is sort of what I like to think of as fantasy politics, right? Because for the last four years in America, you've seen essentially two kinds of fantasy politics play themselves out. Uh, on, on the one hand, you have these QAnon people who have this entire political constellation and ecosystem, solar system, whatever kind of system you want to say, um, that they, that is filled with just myth and fantasy, right? A lot of it. I and mean, some of it's true, but accidentally usually. And then you have people who are like, well, America is two seconds away from fascism. Russia is going to control us. And it's like, I think it's a combination of like just this really fucked up nihilistic society and a combination of like a, this real depolitization, especially here, where there's like no actual politics to fight for. And so the only way to like make politics at all something is to be like, well, there's also magic and babies being eaten. In this episode, we speak with Brace Belden about his journey to fight in the Syrian civil war with the YPG, a Kurdish militia, and following his return to America, his successful campaign to form a workers' union. Brace is the co-host of the True Anon podcast, an investigation into the personal and political connections of Jeffrey Epstein. So we speak about Pizzagate, the hysteria of conspiracy theories, and the evangelist nature of QAnon. So Brace, I want to kick off with a pretty um, hefty question because we've done this podcast and we've been kind of attempting to focus in some respects on what counterculture is, but we've never actually asked anyone about that. So I wanted to get your perspective as uh, someone who's lived a rich life. Um, uh, on Do you think that counterculture has any meaning as a term today? Does it? Does it no. Yeah. So let's no. hear, let's hear I- why. I was thinking about that earlier today and like I was, I took a long walk today and uh, I was thinking like, you know, you're a 16 year old kid now or something. And like, you know, you see how things work. Maybe you live in like a, you know, a city or something, you're, you know, you got young parents or even old parents or whatever. I don't know what you would do to be part of a counterculture that had anything but like a just directly kind of nihilistic bent to it. Right. Like if I was like, cause I, when I was 16, I was just like everything that like my parents like and that older people like, and that like society likes, I don't like. So I'm just going to be like a shit out. I'll put a swastika on a shirt, you know, blah, blah, you know, I'll like, I'll be loud and obnoxious. Um, but now it's like, I think this is why like a lot of people get into like, like 4chan kind of like stupid, like just really dumb racism shit is because like. Every everything around them is just so. I mean, I don't know what it's like in a, in a, in in Australia, but I imagine pretty similar because our stuff leaks over to the to the to the crown colonies pretty <laughs> with, with some regularity. But like, I think this is why like 
you see any, anybody who's like kind of um, countercultural or whatever, who's really young is just into this like totally bizarre um, world of just like nihilistic hatred. Um, because the prevailing culture we have here in America is just like this, it's not great. And like, you know, you're combining, uh, you know, with how it was before kind of like the woke stuff. And then you have like the really woke stuff. And it's just, I think it's just really confusing for a lot of people. And so like the countercultures here have kind of just been, as it happens, absorbed into the prevailing culture, right? Like there's no like hipsters or like vice people anymore. That's just how people look in nice neighborhoods. And like, there's not even any punk people like, like, I mean, there are still people in the punk, but like, there's no like sort of new developments in punk or anything like that. Uh, I, I think honestly, counterculture now I would just overdose on fentanyl if I was 16, that would be my, that would be my big thing I would do. So um, I'd like to hear a bit about, cause you like war crime is a pretty nihilistic band. So you've mm. you've like experienced this directly yourself. Like you've gone through this like nihilistic countercultural yeah. experience. Um, I'd like to hear about how you got past that. Mm. And what was seductive about counterculture for you when you were growing up? Yeah, that that I think I was lucky because back then it was still like even if if you're countercultural, you were still part of like a community of people. You were still part of like you know, a, a culture, you know, counter to the regular culture. Whereas now I think it just kind of takes place like in alienate, alienated sort of spaces online where like you don't actually interact with anyone in real life. And so I think for me, it was having to interact with other people um, because my big thing was, I'm really good at like being rude. In fact, that was like the only thing I was good at when I was in a band was just being really rude. And all of the like, you know, the only reason anyone liked us really, I mean, our songs are all right, but really we were just extremely, well, we were much ruder than other bands. Um, and at the time I was like, this is great. Like we came up with a specific plan. Like we have to become so obnoxious that our, we, uh, we only draw like the worst, most obnoxious, violent people as our fan base. And then we have to disavow them later in like a sort of suicidal tendencies type move. Um, which worked. We did gain like a really obnoxious, in, in, in the Bay Area at least, um, violent uh, young fan base who we did not disavow because no one asked us to. But uh, it caused me kind of a lot of problems, and it, which was fine. Like a lot of the people I had problems with, you know, they fucking sucked in their own ways. You know what I mean? Like I at least was just honest that I was a piece of shit. You know, they were not so honest. Um, but I, I kind of just outgrew it because like I, I realized there's like a lot more to the world than just like making, you know, this really sort of base vulgar version of just like making my parents, my parents didn't even care. Like they were just at work. And so like, uh, you know, it, it eventually kind of the shtick wore thin and like, I wanted to like play music and like hang out with people without having to be this fucking like, um, character essentially. And what was that? Was there like a turning point moment for you where that really clicked for you or did you just grow up? <laughs> I got into heroin. Okay. Uh, yeah, I got into heroin because I, I, I never fully got out of being obnoxious. Um, but once I got into heroin, it was like, everything's all good, man. Like, you know, we don't need to fight. Like, oh, I'm so sorry that I was rude to you when I was younger. Like, yeah, like, you know, let's just make up and stuff like that. And so, I mean, basically, and then that took me out for kind of a while of like actually doing anything. Um, and so, yeah, that was basically, and once I got out of that, it was like, I was a whole different person. 
How did you break out of that? I got arrested, uh, and then um, then they I had to go to rehab because of the court, and then a bunch of, like I basically got sick of it. Also, I was doing meth for like a year, like shooting meth every day for a year, and that really kind of takes its toll on you. And my body was kind of falling apart, and so eventually I just couldn't do it anymore. Like I, I couldn't afford it. I ran out of connections. I burned all my connections. Got beaten up by a, a lot of people who uh, I'm thankful they just beat me up. Um, I stole money from everybody I knew who had any kind of money uh, and uh, had burned every bridge I could possibly burn. And so my next step was a pretty, would be, have been a, I would have gone even lower than, than I already was. And I, I, I couldn't hack it. I'm a poser junkie, you know, like I never sucked a mm-hmm. cock or nothing. Uh, you know, I, I, I never, you know, held anybody up. It's, I, I was just, I was, you know, I, I was in it, but I wasn't, I rode the way, but I wasn't like under the wave. I'm happy to hear you, you, you come out the other end. I know it's a t- tough thing to, to kick. Definitely. I uh, had my, um, my dance with meth and, uh, yeah, yeah it can really, uh, eat you, eat you up for sure. It will definitely eat your morals up. You become very gung <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Everything yeah, seems, yeah. everything seems plausible when you're in that yes. mind state for sure. Um, and that's the problem is everything seems plausible. And so you end up doing some things that are highly implausible <laughs> and failing at them and, and, and being very frustrated at that failure. Absolutely. But, um, uh, man, I want to know how, how someone like you goes from playing in those bands, kicking the habit, to fighting in a Kurdish militia. That How does, how does that happen? Well, I got really like, I had read like political stuff when I was younger and like um, most of it, I mean, being into punk, it was just kind of this like vague, like, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know if listeners will understand this reference, but slingshot calendar style, like, you know, like lots of trees and like, you know, sort of like aphorisms and maxims about like anarchy and freedom and all this kind of stuff. And that always seemed very corny to me. Um, that was like a kind of different kind of punk that I was in. Um but, you know, I read some of that stuff and like my dad had been like a 60s radical. And so like there were books laying around that very voracious reader, like big. And especially when I was when I was on drugs, like I, I didn't hang out with anybody. I just read books like when I was by myself. What were you um, reading? So a great... I read, uh, I think the first, weirdly enough, the first like political book book I read, I think was um, a book by Lenin called uh, Left Wing Communism and Infantile Disorder, which I had like no context for reading uh, in like 2011 or something, 2012. Uh, and like I read a lot of history books and sort of like understood that that actually was a leg up because I sort of understood the shape of the world, but I didn't understand kind of what colored it in. Um, and so reading political books, um, I don't know. It just became something I did when I was on drugs because I was like, first of all, being on drugs, I was like, I understand all of this perfectly. Exactly. <laughs> and, <laughs> sometimes it took a couple more readings when I got sober. Um, but, uh, you know, and this kind of like, I think partially just like, you know, it allowed me to live in kind of a different world than the world I was living in, um, which was, which was one with very few windows, uh, like literal windows. I lived in a basement. Um, and uh, I don't know, for some reason, like reading, reading that kind of stuff and knowing that there was like people, you know, like millions of people uh, throughout history uh, who, you know, firmly believed in this kind of thing. I had never encountered something like that, something to actually like believe in. Because punk is like, 
it's weird, you know, growing up, punk is almost treated like a politics. Like, you know, people will be like, punks and skins unite, but like, unite for what? Like, to get beer together? Or like, you know, punk is like treated like this political movement. Um, when like, you know, it's, it's, I think a fantastic way to like grow up and it's the music I listen to and, you know, things I still shows I still go to today. But like, once I understood that there was something sort of bigger than that, I got real, real excited. Um, and so I just, I just read for a long time. And how, were you, what were you reading at the time that introduced you to the mess that is the Syrian civil war? Because it's, it's like the most complicated melting yeah. pot of proxy wars, uh, you know, civil, yes. like religious conflicts, all sorts of madness. Um, I, I gather that would have taken more than one book to, to really. That was, that was, I had read, I had read like a book by uh, Abdullah Ojalan who's like the imprisoned leader of the, uh, the PKK, the Kurdish, mm. the Kurdish sort of armed group. I'll tell you what, the book I read didn't make a lot of sense. Later, I read a book that was like, all right. But I was like, the one I read, I was like, what the fuck is this joker talking about? Um, but uh, it was more like a philosophy book. And that stuff can be hard for my simple mind to, to, to grasp. But uh, I, uh, I actually, that was from like, I was working in a gym. Like I'd always been like aware of the Syrian civil war, you know, um, like, yeah, it's, was big news for a while and continued to be big news while I was reading about it. Um, although it's sort of faded now. Um, but I, I, I was working at a gym. It was the first job I ever worked at where I had access to a computer. Um, it was at this boxing gym and part of my job there was to check people in. And so I'd sit there and just kind of like look at the news, uh, on, on the computer and I would like sort of obsessively read it. And like, one of the things that is wrong with me is that like when I, um, when I get an idea, like I'll just like obsessed over it and like basically think of nothing else. Like I get a lot of ideas every day and I can't remember any, I have a really bad memory. And so like when one sticks, it like really sticks and like I become sort of like mentally ill around it and not like a fucked up way or nothing, but like, I just like kept, it was like all I read about. And uh, then I realized there was, there was a death of this woman, Ivana Hoffman, who was this like, I think Togolese German woman. Um, uh, who died there fighting with this group called the Melikape, which is the Marxist Leninist Communist Party of Turkey. Um, and I was like, wait, this chick is dead, like in Syria? And I started reading about her and about her life, and I got really obsessed with that. Um, and, uh, and then I realized I could do that. Like, I could not die. Well, I could, that, that, that's, you know, I could go there. Um, and, uh, and then I started talking to, because I have Kurdish and Turkish friends here, um, and I started hanging out with them and like asking them about that. And some of that had been there in like 2014, they had, um, not as fighters, but you know, like, you know, their families are from Turkey, they crossed the border. Um, and, uh, and so they kind of like, you know, gassed me up on it. And so, really? I thought that, I mean, yeah. they all would have been surely running away from it. No, 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 no. They were like, yeah, you should definitely go. Like, really? Wow. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, they, they've gone too and stuff. They didn't fight, but like, and the, the thing is like fighting's the only, kind of the only way you can get out there. And so it's like, I didn't, if I could have gone and not fought, I was like, I probably would have chosen to do so at the time. And I, I wouldn't have chosen to do that now. I think what I did was a good decision, but like, I, uh, if at the time I was like, well, I can't, what do I, I've never shot a gun before, you know, like, it's like, 
way. Which, like, if you think about it, most people in civil wars haven't necessarily shot guns at people before. You know, it's like 16-year-old kids. Um, and so I, uh, I eventually sent an email. I had to figure out, like, what PGP was and, like, all this encryption mm-hmm. shit, which I still don't understand how I did because I don't, like, I, computers are mystifying to me. And so... I, uh, I sent an email to this email address I found and they wrote back and they like, you know, after a while they're like, yeah, come out here. And I, I just booked a flight to Iraq and uh, told everyone I was here. I was going to work on a radio station. It was the first lie that came to my head. Um, so, but people, people believed it. Um, Cause it's like, so it's like, why, why would anyone lie about something that stupid? Why wouldn't you just pick any more plausible lie? Um, and, uh, and then I took, I took a plane to Iraq and then Iraq, uh, I was supposed to meet a guy at an airport. Of course, there's nobody at the airport. And uh, I call his number a few times. Eventually, he calls me back. He tells me to give the phone to a taxi driver, which I was like, any taxi driver? And uh, the taxi driver just drives me to this hotel. Um, I end up waiting in this fucking, the Dolphin Hotel in downtown Suleimania. So this is like the Kurdish region of Iraq. And so uh, I named as such because it's like, the, there's a word for dolphin in every language. I'm like, oh, okay. You could have just named it like TV hotel. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, well, so I, I meet this guy in like a room. I get a room. I had to pay for a room. I'm like, we're there for like an hour. I'm like, you know, we could have just let us use the room. But uh, I pay for a room and, and this guy is in there or he comes and meets me in there and he's like really skittish. I later found out he's a smuggler. And then I later find out that he's actually uh, like kind of like a spy. He stole all our, all our information and sold it to the Turkish government. Uh, and uh he like he's like all freaked out. The police are following him. I don't know what this dude was fucking talking about because the police in Suleimania do not give a fuck about this kind of shit. Uh, and he's hiding in like a, there's like an armoire there, and he hides in there. I'm like, you know, if the police come in here, they're probably going to open the armoire, like if they're following you. That's the only place to hide in the room. And he stays in there for an hour, and I'm like very tense at first, and like fucking, like oh my god, I'm about to get arrested in Suleimania. And then after like 30 minutes, I'm like. I would just like open a book and start reading because I'm like, I don't know what else. It's like, I'm not going to just keep looking at the door. Do you and think it takes it, us to a safe? Do you think your experiences ahead. with meth uh, gave you less paranoia? And uh, yes. <laughs> I feel like, absolutely. I, I feel like I'd be far less paranoid in an environment like that just after coming off meth and breaking that cycle. When, when well, this exp- was a few years later, but definitely like, <laughs> I was like, I've encountered guys like this guy's acting like half the dudes I know. Um, and then he took me to a safe house. And then after like four or five days in the safe house, they took us uh, on on foot to Syria. Well, we drove to the mountains and then through there, uh, across the Tigris, you know, dinghy. Um, and then did like a 10 hour fucking hike into Syria, which sucked. But uh, I'm not a big hiker. Um and then I was there for like six or seven months. Right. What was your first impression when you got there? And how much how much money do you have to take on you when you're going to fight a revolution for the Kurds? <laughs> I took $400 in $100 bills in my phone case. <laughs> I didn't have any more money than that. So I was like, this is about uh, like what I can get. Um, uh, but they don't use money. Well, the guys I was with don't use money. So it didn't, it didn't turn out to be a problem at all. But... And it was very like, I mean, I went from being in like the safe house with a couple other Americans to like being in the mountains with these like gorillas and then the gorillas taking on this hike through a minefield. But like, I'm unable to process things as like 
really fucked up and scary until they like start actually like if their ideas like if the guy's like that's a minefield right there i'm like well you know if a mine blows up then i'm like holy fuck there's a minefield but if like you know he's like we're walking through a minefield just follow me i'm like oh there's not much i can do about it so it was like i i it was like it didn't hit me that there was like a war for a second um and then you know we go to a base with them and i'm and then we they take us to a like a westerners training base and that was like it was it was weird because I expected it to be like much scarier than it was, but it was kind of just like you know it was like 30, 20, 30 guys sometimes uh, just tra- or, I mean the actual training was like 15, 20 guys, and there was just like some other guys in transit there, and it was just kind of like you'd expect like people from all over the world just like you know some people are funny, some people are stupid, some people are insane, and like. They taught, they gave us language lessons. They gave us fucking uh, political lessons. They gave us some military lessons, which turned out to be the dumbest military lessons. They like taught us how to do like mountain ambushes. Meanwhile, I did not see anything that was more than like three feet elevation for the rest of my time there, um, let alone like high grass or whatever. And uh, yeah, it was just like I I I got used to it, and like you know, it's, I liked being in a uniform. I kind of like was fine with taking directions, and then. They sent me and two other guys to a heavy weapons unit and then immediately into an operation. And so, um, and is that's, that, yeah. Is that when it got real? Yeah. Yeah. But it was still kind of fun just because the guys I was not fun, but like, it was like, like the guys we were with were such fucking goofs, not like loot, like idiots or anything, but like they were just like goofing around all the time. And so like the Kurdish guys we were with, um, and I didn't speak Kurdish at that point. Like I tried to learn at home for a long time and I couldn't do it. And then I failed to learn at the academy, but I was able to learn it with these guys because I wanted to fuck around with them and because I was bored and I couldn't. And so eventually I was able to speak Kurdish just to like kind of razz them. Um, and so that was like, that was more real because it was fighting, but it was like, it was at that time, it was like the fighting was like pretty far, like, not far away from us. Like we were, we were fighting people, but like they were far from where we, like we were having to shoot really long distances. And so it's like, you could see people like in binoculars, but it wasn't like guys like right in front of you. Cause we were just in the middle of the fucking desert. Like there's like nothing around us. Um, and we saw like, you know, we like, there was like a lot of like uh car bomb, not car bombs, but they call them V bids, like vehicle born IEDs that we got hit with. Uh, and we saw like, I mean, we saw all this crazy shit like cages in these towns and like, you know, like car bomb factories. Um, but it was mostly just a lot of waiting around. And so when you wait around, you know, you kind of just fuck around with each other. What can um, you remember about the first conversations you had with other people that had traveled there for this? Like, what was your... Yeah, I'm interested in the other Westerners. Yeah. How cosmopolitan yeah. was it and where were they kind of from? Most of them are European. Um there was a lot of Italian anarchists who were like really kind of crazy guy. They all had like knife wounds on their faces from getting in fights in Italy. Um, or yeah, they were from like Southern Italy, I think. Um, there was uh, there was a few guys that were there was a couple pair of guys that actually became pretty good friends with, um, or one of them became pretty good friends with, who were just ex-soldiers who had had. Um, I mean, one guy I was like became actually really good friends with. He's the only guy I've ever hung out with outside of Syria. Like he he came and visited me a bunch of times in the Bay Area. But he had been you know raised in an orphanage in the Bay Area, joined the Marines at seventeen, got blown up in Iraq and Afghanistan, all fucked up. 
comes back, becomes a drug addict, uh, shoots a gun at somebody, goes to jail uh, or goes to prison, gets out of prison, joins the French Foreign Legion, and then deserts the French Foreign Legion and goes to Syria. Um, and so he was all fucked up, but he was really funny. And so we, we hung and he spoke like really good Arabic. And so um, we hung out a lot. Uh, but, you know, there was it all ranged. It was mostly political types. Um, the prior people who would come were mostly like glory seeker guys. But by the time I was there, they were specifically just trying to get like political people um, or po- like people who were, you know, who would possibly join the party as like cadre after that. Um, and so, which worked on some of the guys I was there with, they're still there. Um, or they went to other places with the party. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a strange mix of people. It was like a really eclectic mix of guys. And it was only guys. There were, there were, there were women too, but they, they, we, they didn't, we never saw them. Like we'd see them occasionally like, I think I saw like three foreign fighter women, but beyond that, it was, it was, it was all guys. And it was like mostly Southern Europeans and then a lot of Germans. In fact, I got to tell you this, the Germans, I did not like so much. They were very weird. Tell us about, about the Germans. Everything. The first commander of the base was a German. And he was like, so the way the party works is that like, they have like regular people who are in the party and they're, or in the YPG and you're supposed to serve a term of six months and then you can get out. And then they have cadre who are like in it for life. And you go wherever the party tells you to do, you're celibate, blah, blah, blah. It's a, it's, you know, it's a good system. It really works for them. But there were like German cadre who were there. And so they were like, I was, I, 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 I kept calling this guy Eichmann, not to like his face, but I was like, cause he was such a fucking taskmaster and they would do shit. Like, you know, they'd start shooting off an AK outside our fucking room at like three in the morning to be like, this is a simulated attack. But I'm like, I know no one's attacking us. It's, I know it's you shooting AK 47 and any of us could kick your ass. So like, this is not, and eventually someone almost did kick his ass and they had to put in a Kurdish commander, which was much better. Cause that guy was totally insane. Um, but the, uh, the Germans were always like at one point I had two days off there my entire time. And when I was on my way, way back, uh, they let me go to Kamishlo, which is like the big city in the North there for two days. And, uh, the party gave me a pistol cause I didn't, I, I, I gave my AK to somebody else and, and well, cause I was, I was going home. And so the party gave me a pistol to carry around. We go to this youth center where we're supposed to stay. Me and this, me and the Sikh dude, uh, who I was with. And, uh, one of these kids was like, can I see the gun? And he's not a kid. He's like 17 or 18. And I'm like, yeah, you can see the gun. So I unload the gun. There's no bullets in the gun. The magazine is empty or it's, it's out of the gun. And I let him fuck around with it. And he's, you know, again, he is like 17, 18 years old. A lot of 17 or 18 year olds with guns there. He's a cadre in the party. Like it's not, you know, and this fucking German comes in wearing shorts and he's like, oh, you can't do that. In fact, you can't be here anymore. Because I'm like, what? I should shoot you. Like, what are you doing here? Like you, you come in here. Like I've never met you before. And you're like telling me like all these orders and stuff. And so that was like, they were always just do every time a German would pop up, it would be like, Oh great. Like we're in fucking trouble now. And there's no ranks there. So I'm like, you can't really tell me what to do. Um, but yeah, yeah. I didn't like the Germans, although good on them for spending the rest of their life doing that. Did you see a lot of those kind of internal squabbles between people with like these firm positions that had come there for completely different reasons? Yeah. So the last, uh, I, I was in three different units. I was in a heavy weapons unit and then that we finished the operation. And I asked if I could be transferred to like just a regular infantry unit. I did that. And then I was able to get transferred to a infantry unit, but it was this thing called, and it's a really shitty name called, uh, the United Freedom Forces, um, which is, it's, it, it sounds better in Turkish, but 
it's a coalition of three Turkish communist parties, one Maoist party, one sort of like mainline, like semi non-denominational communist party that I was in. And then, um, there was, uh, there was the Ahojahis party, which is like ultra Maoist. Um, and, uh, I was in the smallest one. Excuse me. The one, the group I was in called, it's called United Freedom Forces. That was the, that was the communist party. It was in, that wasn't the combined group. The combined group was just called the international Tabor. Um, Tabor means platoon there. Uh, and so there was also like, they would take any other politicals that wanted to come, but you had to be sponsored by one of the parties. And so the Maoists would always sponsor the anarchists. And like, so it was like maybe 40 or 50 of us, mostly Turkish uh, or like 25 Turks, 25, um, just Westerners, only like two Americans, I think. It was like me and one other one. Um, and then it was very funny because the first thing actually I heard when I showed up to their like frontline position was this like British yob playing fucked up real loud, like while like putting in like um, like reinforcing a, a window that had gotten blown out. Um, but it was it was funny because like all the three different parties, I mean, there were squabbles and stuff like that, but like it was really like, all the stuff that anarchists would say about like, oh, there's no authority about blah, blah, blah. You know, like we have no hierarchy that goes out the window when you're fighting because you got to listen to somebody, right? Like I, I, if we're have like, you know, all free and equal, man, like, you know, like nothing, you know, it's, there's no, there's no hierarchy here. There's definitely a hierarchy there. And there is in the party too. It's a democratic centralist you know, party and parties. And so like, you know, you take orders from somebody, but we did do like everything else very democratically which led to some very long meetings, but like, you know, decide who does what chores or like, I mean, I don't know chores, but like who's cooking when, uh, the leaders could be like, you know, if you wanted to criticize somebody, you were allowed to criticize somebody. That's the whole thing that all the different parties out there have, have something they actually took from the, from the PFLP actually wearing a t-shirt, uh, which is called tech meal where they have criticism and self-criticism sessions every night. And so, um, you were allowed to criticize your commander and like they were not allowed to get mad about it, which was pretty cool. But, uh, well, actually when we were in the, we were in like the international Tabor, we didn't really do those cause everyone got kind of sick of doing them. Cause we had a lot of things you had to gather every night and like, that was like an, an active front. And so there was always shit you had to do. And like, you know, you had to look out through people or for people, but, uh, mostly everybody got along. Like the guys I was really good friends with were Greek anarchists and I can't usually stand anarchists in America. And so, like, you know, it was it was pretty, although anarchists in America, I think, are a very peculiar breed. Um, it was, yeah, it was, everyone got along pretty well. Who, who was the enemy that you came into contact with the most? Uh, when I was there, 100% ISIS. Like, um, there was a, a, other friends got to go. Because when I went out there, I thought we were going to be connecting to Cantons because they have, like, three different Cantons. Uh Jazeera, Kobani, and then Afrin. And in the middle of that was like ISIS territory, but also Turkish Free Syrian Army, like Turkish-backed Free Syrian Army. And we thought we were going to go fight the Turkish-backed Free Syrian Army, which is basically just like, it's not the old Free Syrian Army. It's like Tur it's mercenaries working for Turkey as like their proxy force directly. Was the Al Nusra front around as well? That's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, well, not not where we were, but on, the, uh, on that front, yeah. Um, but like, the thing is, those groups are so like people just come and go from them, you know, and there's such a like a mishmash of groups kind of packed into one place that like, who knows, like a couple of guys I know got killed by like non ISIS jihadis up there. And I have no idea which group they belong to, you know, um, but I think Al Nusra is like further into Idlib. So like further south than that. 
Although I'm sure they have. I mean, that's the thing is like everyone's got shooters everywhere. So. And so did you, how close did you come into contact with ISIS? And do you remember the first time you, you saw those guys or you saw what they'd done to a, to a village or town that you passed through? So the first time we saw them was the, literally the day we launched an operation. We were gathered at this like old, like uh, Assad, like tank base that like kind of got blown to bits uh, in this town called Ainisa, which is a pretty big town. Well, not relatively big town. Um, and they did the most baffling shit I've ever seen, which was send like eight car bomb or like, you know, big ass like armored cars filled with explosives again along like open desert. And so like people just shot them and they just blew up. Like it's, you know, it's like, it doesn't, because like car bombs make sense in like a city because like, you know, you can turn a corner and then blow up and you get a bunch of people in one place. But like in a big ass desert, they blow up and there's like no one around for like half a kilometer. Um, and so that was the first time I ever saw them. The closest I saw them, I think was probably, um, in like a month later at the end of the operation, uh, in this town called Tel Simon. And, you know, we, the towns like, I never really got to examine the towns that they had like fucked up. I mean, we drove through them and like, we walked through houses and stuff like that. But like the, t- like the last place I was stationed, um, just called Kalta, uh, that little town had been completely depopulated by them. Like they'd killed a bunch of people. Um, and we were like walking around me and this, me and the Scottish guy, Cal, were like walking around doing like a little patrol. And like, we found all this like really depressing shit, like all these tax slips. We found all of these, like their literature and like every house and stuff like that. Um, and I can't read Arabic, but like a bunch of other people there could, and they like, you know, translate it for us. Um, they had like they had blacked out all like the women on the like shampoo and stuff like that. Um, and uh, then we found a bunch of like IEDs they had left. And then that's like really what kills everyone too. It's like they just leave mines. Uh, and then we found a mine factory, which like was a we were poking our noses in places we shouldn't have. We I think we were like kind of just bored and exploring a little bit because they had heard reports that there was a guy in the town. So we're like, let's go look for this fucking guy. And then uh because there was not supposed to be anyone in the town, only like YPG in our bases. And there wasn't anybody, but we ended up kind of like getting in some trouble with mines. How much did you know about ISIS and what before you went? And what was the kind of word within the military about ISIS? Because they'd done some pretty, like it must have been quite a personal thing as much as it was a political combat, especially for the Kurds. So the first time, like, I ever heard anyone really talk, I mean, like, we talked about ISIS and training, but, like, no one, you know, it wasn't really, like, a subject we talked a lot about because their main enemy is usually, you know, it's Turkey. Although, mm. but ISIS had fought, like, a war of, like, annihilation with the Kurds there. Like, they yeah. had, like, fully depopulated villages. They, like, beheaded yeah. a shit ton of people. And so I remember, like, before the first operation, like, when I first got to the front, I went to, uh, we went to this place where they make kind of, like, homemade tanks and make like, you know, they put the machine guns on the backs of trucks. And this like 16 year old kid was like, Hey, check out these videos on my phone. And his village had been taken over from by ISIS. And it was videos he had shot of them. just like fucking executing people. Um, yeah, it was insane. I was like, oh, Jesus, man, like, you should maybe not be showing those videos. I don't know. It's like, you want to watch those? Like, don't you know those people? Um, and, uh, and like, we saw like, you know, cages, there was like, in the last base we were at, even like it was a three-story school that had been an ISIS base previously, like before we had taken it over. Um, and uh there was like 
a room that they definitely we think been doing some rapes in because there was like a lot of bloody underwear or maybe someone had just like solved the wound with underwear that's kind of the only thing that we could think of um and just like cages the thing that astounded me was just like cages in the town like on the street um that they would just like lock people up in like they didn't i mean i know they have prisons and stuff but this was just like I, I, I was sort of confused at this because it was like you would be just driving down like a boulevard and there would just be like a big ass cage that I guess they would just keep people in so that you could see that they had people imprisoned. Um, but I mean, it was like, it was like a black fucking hole. Like whenever you went into their territories that they had had, it was just like really ugly. And like, it, you know, they, they had, they had fucked a lot of these places. And obviously a lot of these places have been fucked up because, you know, they've been fighting with the, the Syrian army there. And then they've been fighting with the YPG. And so a lot of these towns were pretty fucked up, like, you know, from previous battles. Um, but I mean, they, they really like, they instituted this entire new system I and mean, they had taxation, they had, you know, a new school curriculum, they had all this kind of stuff. And finding that stuff was really jarring. We also, um, I guess the closest I ever got to them was we took a couple prisoners. Um, uh, once and like I, you know, watched we we took the prisoners and then I sort of watched over them with a couple other guys for a while, um, and I was just like staring at them and I was like, "What is your deal?" Like we're because I mean a lot of people join ISIS because you know ISIS comes to my village. I'm a fucking 17 year old kid. You know I'm gonna do what I gotta do probably to survive. You know I mean if, if in that circumstance you know it's not like it's not like a lot of if you're still in that village you can't you don't have enough money to flee. Maybe your fucking dad's dead or he's in the Syrian army or whatever. Um, you know, what, what can you do? And so like, oh, there was like a difference between like those guys. And then there was a difference between like guys who were like in it, in it. And like the guys that we captured were like in it and they weren't even fighters. They were like, well, I think one was a fighter. The other was just like an administrator. Um, and I was just like, Jesus, like, do you, it just seemed so alien to me um, that like they would like, I mean, I get like, you know, you do fucked up things in the name of, you know, something that you believe in. People, I mean, people have shown that to be, uh, you know, a, a common experience throughout history. But like to do, to be part of something that like only kind of does bad things to people is, was just sort of jarring to me. I just didn't understand it. What, what interests me is that very brutal modern version of persecution. Yeah. And then there's the old, Kind of Hafiz al Assad, who who was also responsible yeah. for the genocides of, of the Kurdish people. Were, were there any conversations about the kind of how they've had to bolster this resilience for, for from you know the reigning political party of the day to like these complete radicals now as well? So I think um, from my understanding of it is that is that they are much more amenable to like dealing with the with the government or like with the with the with Assad and with the Ba'athist party than they are you know they can't deal with ISIS and like they've had this sort of like touch and go relationship with with the Assad you know with him and his father essentially i mean Abdullah Ocalan took refuge in Syria until i think 1990 when he got kicked out by Assad or by Assad's father Hafez Assad uh, Hafez, Hafez al-Assad uh under like Turkish and NATO pressure. And then, you know, the CIA and Mossad arrest Ojalan in, in Kenya, I think. Um, and so after that, you know, the, there, there's a lot of incidents. There's a particular big fire, which killed a lot of school children, which they blamed on the government uh, in a movie theater in Kamishlo. Um, when I was there, it was weird because the, the, the main city Kamishlo uh, is made up. I mean, it's 
the only big city in the north and like half of it is controlled like 75% of it is controlled by YPG and then 25% is controlled by the central government and so it was weird because we'd go through our checkpoints and like you know we'd be carrying guns and like you know we'd be in uniform and stuff and then we would just like put our guns away and pass by like a giant like like building size portrait of Bashar al-Assad and like go through their checkpoint or like go right past their checkpoint and that was that was like there was never any problems. I was there. You were like, we were told like, don't go to this part of town because you know, you're an American and that's like not a good thing to be over there. But like my buddy smoked weed with some, my buddy smoked weed with some Afghanis that were like, uh, Assad soldiers that I guess they'd been like lent to him by Iran. Um, and, uh, a few people out there smoked weed with some very strange people or some very some interesting cats have, have weed out there. It's not a very common thing. Um, but uh, it was so they're like more amenable to deal with them. And the thing is, they have to. Right. Like the, the Assad's not getting out of power, um, certainly not anytime soon. And so like they and they don't want it like their whole thing is like they're not secessionists. And so there's this weird sort of delicate balance between like them and Russia and the U.S. there now because all these different countries and Iran all these different countries have troops there. And actually, in a way, the Turkish invasion of the past couple invasions of the past couple of years has sort of galvanized that relationship. And hopefully that can lead to the sort of this political restructuring, which which they hope for. Um, I think it it probably will, because Russia certainly, I mean, they they, you know, Russia's not exactly the most progressive force in the world, but uh, but they have been at times fairly decent mediators between the Kurds and 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 the central government. With ISIS, on the other hand, everybody, they call them Cheta out there, which just means like gangsters, I guess. Um, mm. Or Dijmin, which I mean is the Arabic word for enemy. I believe it means enemy. Um, and uh, and they, they're much more down on them. Like they, like they, they, people would talk to you in like regular conversation about like Al-Nusra and, and ISIS because a lot of their families have been killed by them as opposed to the, to the government, which is like a lot of people have been arrested in the past and killed in the past. But like that was the sort of, further ago and so it was like this was the more immediate thing that they were dealing with um but it's certainly it's like a very strange like it's i've never seen anything like in the world and like reading news stories didn't do it justice because it was just so strange to see like in the central square of kamishlo and the souk there um or like in the market uh there was just like soldiers from like russia and syria and the ypg just all walking around like me and the Sikh guy fucking had sandwiches at a table uh, and there were just like Syrian army guys like two feet from us. And so it was very, it's just like jarring because it's, it, you can see sort of like this political arrangement out there in miniature just with sort of like the lowest people on the totem pole all sort of like having to sort of stick around each other. Also, you can buy Syrian army uniforms and YPG uniforms at the same stores, which I thought was really funny. That's so I'm like, funny. I would just, I have a Syrian army jacket. Like I, I, which we, I took from, um, somebody didn't need it anymore, but was not a Syrian soldier. Uh, and yeah, you can just buy all of it together and they sell patches. Like everyone loves patches out there. Um, and so they have patches, like, I mean, fucking, I'll tell you this. Look, some of these stores look like a goddamn Pittsburgh cross punks pants. There's so many goddamn patches. There. <laughs> They're patches for shit that I'm like, I'm here. I don't know what this is for. Uh, and so uh, I have I have a couple of ISIS patches too, um, Whoa. that I smuggled back in my. Yeah, yeah. I it's it like for like commanders or whatever. Um, 
and I, I was never able to get a flag, but the patches, that's cool. I also, the flag would have gotten confiscated, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, it's a very strange, it's like, it's just a totally bizarre place. Well, tell us about how you, the circumstances around you leaving. And I'd like to especially hear about the first conversations you had when you came home, when you had to tell people that you weren't going to Iraq for yeah. a radio station job. Well, so I had actually gotten kind of like internet famous out there because I just like tweeted when I was out there, you know, which I didn't have anything to do most of the time. I mean, most of the time you're fucking waiting around. Although once I got to the front, you got the internet like once every three weeks, they had a little van that came around and updated everyone's iPads, which is what they use for maps. Um, so like people knew I was out there at that point, but I left after, or on, I'd only planned to go for six months, um, but uh you know, my relationship, you know, you, you had, people tend not to like it uh, when you don't tell them that you're going to fight in Syria. Um, and so, you know, the agreement we came to is that, you know, you go for six months. You have to, if you're a volunteer, they expect you to go. Like, that's like the tour of duty or whatever is six months long. And so after that, uh, I I came home. Um, and uh, it, coming home was a process. They, uh they we had to do the same walk over there but in reverse um there was a lot of border activity at the time which was not conducive to crossing and so it was like going to get delayed a month but then they were like no we're going right now like you know you have to leave this minute um and then i stayed in iraq for about a week in a safe house which was the most boring fucking week of my life because i'd already read all my books and so um it was very strange because in Suleimani there's like a shopping mall. I mean, Suleimani is a beautiful fucking city. I wish I'd seen more of it. Um, but they like took us to a shopping mall and it's like a week before I had been like in the dirt on the front. And then I was like in a mall buying shoes now because I didn't have any shoes. Um, very, very, very jarring. And they, the party bought me a very cheap plane ticket home. Or not the party, a smuggler bought me a very cheap plane ticket home. They gave me $200. Uh American money. And, uh, and I came home and it was weird because like, I, I had been so used to, I mean, this, this was six months, like, you know, you are in like very, very particular surroundings the entire time. Um, you know, you're only interacting with other guys and in, in, in men and women because it's, they're mixed gender units. Um, other, other men and women in your, in your Tabors, your platoons. Um, and then all of a sudden I was sort of thrust back into the real world. And I, I, I took a long flight, went to Egypt where I ended up paying a guy $5. So he let me smoke a cigarette in a broom closet. And then I realized he didn't work at the airport. And so respect, if he's listening, respect to you because that was a good scam. Um, and then I, I, I had a layover in Austria, I think. Yeah. Yeah. In Austria. And, uh, and I just walked around Austria for like 10 hours at night and I went to like a weird punk bar and I had to leave cause it was like tripping me out. I ate a ate fish, which I, I hadn't done. And then as I was coming back to the airport, I was like, wait, no one questioned me. Like I just walked out of the airport. And uh I when I got back to America, I did get questioned for quite a long time, but it's not illegal to do what I did. It's it's illegal for Europeans to do it. And a bunch of my friends are now in prison or facing charges, but I was all right. And so getting back was weird because it was all anything anybody wanted to talk to me about for like a year. That was it. Um, and I got really, 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 really fucking depressed, um, and like felt very aimless and listless. And like, by the time I had gotten back, you know, like socialism was like a big thing in America. And so that was like cool to see, but it was just very different than I'd been dealing with in, in the part with the party. 
uh, very, very, very different. And um, I don't know. It took me until I found, uh, I basically, my, my buddy Evan hit me up and asked me if I wanted to work in this campaign at a brewery with him. And uh, I got a job at a brewery until I could actually sort of feel like I was doing something again because we engaged in this like very long unionization effort. Um, and I sort of realized I just needed like a, a, a task to do. And that was my, that was my, once I got a new task, I started feeling a lot better. Uh, but it was weird, you know, like people, you know, I, at that time, obviously I talked to my girlfriend, like she didn't, she wasn't mad at me at all, you know, anymore. I mean, she wasn't really mad at me when I was out there either, but like, um, yeah, it was, it was weird coming back. It was really weird. Um, I, I was just, I, 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 I had this sort of just like gray miasma around me at all times. Um, and, uh, and was unable to to find joy or or hope in anything. Um, and then eventually, I felt all right. Can you talk a little about that experience with the the brewery? Because I don't think many yeah. of our listeners would be familiar with that. So, um, so Evan just hit you up and was like, "Can you help us with with this campaign?" Yeah, a bunch of my friends. So there's this big there's this big brewery in San Francisco called Anchor Brewing Company, but everyone calls it Ankerstein because that's the name of the most famous beer. It's an old company, been around since like the 1800s. Uh, very like associated with San Francisco. It's like the San Francisco beer. Uh, a, a lot of my like shitty skater and punk friends work there because it's like a pretty easy job to get and you get free beer. Um, we ended up in like a two-year campaign with this like radical union called the ILWU, which is a dock workers union. Um, they have a warehouse division, which means factories, uh, and a brewery is basically a factory. And so I got a job there and basically worked on the line with a bunch of guys. I mean, I needed a job anyways, and like I would have actually probably gotten a job there even if we were doing this. Um, but we just, you know, a group of like four of us just spent two years working on this. Uh, I mean, four coworkers, and that expanded to six coworkers, and then eight coworkers, and uh, eventually, you know, we had a lot of different guys coming to meetings. But you know, it's about a hundred person workplace with like eighty five people who are eligible for the union, uh, and it was the first tech uh, because it's technically a craft brewery uh, union in America, and so we we we. I can't even remember the exact date that we actually got the union as opposed to when we signed the contract. But uh, after a very long campaign and then a very hard fight against the the management, we were able to get the uh, the majority vote and we got the, we got the union. But that was really cool to do because it became this big campaign and everyone in San Francisco like really got behind us. We had like hundreds of people coming out to these rallies. It was great. So what prompted you to work on podcasts? And what what triggered the the whole Epstein sort of thing? Well, like I don't know, is Pizzagate was that big out there? Yes, yeah, it was. It actually um, ended up um, affecting some really close friends of ours that play in this band called Low Life. Are you familiar with this story, Bryce? No. This is a great story. I know who Low Life is. So the cover of their record um, features an image of um, our friend, our friends Mitch and Christian, and they they're just like. Um, it's, it's in Christian's bar and Mitch is pretending to blow him. And it's like, it's a, it's a seedy yes. kind of security cam photo. And someone put one yeah. of the songs from the record on the internet, just with the cover. And then someone involved. Yeah, like on YouTube or something. Yeah. yeah. So then someone was like, that is a photo from the pizza restaurant. 
the the pizza restaurant. No. And then so if you look it up, you can see on the low life video, there's there's one low life video that they all have like one or two thousand views. And then there's can one you that just has give like, some reference for what the pizza restaurant is and what, what you're talking about. Well, this is the whole thing about Pizzagate. This this there's this like one particular like nefarious spot which had some connection with pedophile rings and the like. Um the, the Oh, I can see it dogging. It just got flooded with people being like, you evil degenerates, how dare you do this? Like that's a photo of a of a child and um probably some incredibly rich politician or something on the cover and it and it end, ended up but the thing is the band had no idea about any of this because Pizzagate wasn't a thing in Australia like we no. I remember when it started happening we yeah, were just like yeah. what the fuck is this about like who is who is Pizzagate like what what does it mean yeah it was mainly like 4chan people like yeah Deep, deep internet people were, were talking about it a lot. The yeah. Tech people. Yeah. So this like inadvertently like um, low life became like embroiled within this Pizzagate thing. Well, it's like in America, it's like by the time I got back, something really weird had happened where like a large portion of the American public had gone, uh, had given themselves a form of like viral. And I mean viral in the sense like like a disease or like a like a you know a germ uh schizophrenia and like where reality had sort of like um become much more malleable to a lot of people and so i was like sort of fascinated and repulsed by this but also you know it was sort of funny because you know they believe it's like the shitty like or not shitty but like this pizza place that has like stupid shows at it uh has like a sex ring in the basement um, but it sort of started gaining, gaining more esteem and it coincided with this like hysteria that was felt all across, I think the American public, not just, uh, you know, among Pizzagate people, but you know, the Russia stuff. And then just in general, this like, you know, this sort of like aura of the Trump era where everyone just lost their fucking minds and went insane. Um, Pizzagate was such a huge symptom of that and it fascinated me. And of course I knew about Epstein because it was just one of those things like, look at this fucking rich billionaire. And so it was like, for some reason, Epstein's arrest coincided with like a real like sort of not Zenith because it's still, I think we've sort of probably reached the Zenith of it, but, uh, but it, this like upsurge in this, in this Pizzagate and then what later became QAnon stuff because Pizzagate was sort of a proto QAnon. It was the, uh, it was the sex pistols to, to QAnon's uh, public image limited. Um, and, uh, it, it was like, I don't know. I was just like entranced by this because it was like, you could see millions of Americans losing their minds in real time. And, uh, and so the Epstein stuff was also like, it's like QAnon, but it's real. And like QAnon, funnily enough, doesn't actually talk about Epstein all that much, even though it's like kind of the clearest link that Bill Clinton has to, you know, people having sex with little kids. Um, Besides, of course, the uh, intervention in in uh, former Yugoslavia, but it was uh, it was just like I, I couldn't stop reading. It was one of those obsessions, the same sort of thing as a Syria thing, where I just got obsessed with it. And it's all that I read about, uh, and then we just started doing this podcast, and uh, people um, people I think had like a real sort of hunger, freak out for Epstein stuff at that time. So we sort of were. It was just like the right time and right place. What was the premise for your podcast? That's like wait, I was much more advanced than how I was thinking about it. But I was my whole thing. I was like, I'm going to solve this, um, and I still like part of me is like, I'm going to solve this. 
Because because your whole thing is like trying to figure out the truest parts and the finding the facts in this mm-hmm. tangled mess and all these conspiracies, right? It's trying to find. Well, hold on. There may be this huge cabal conspiracy, but within it, there are small facts that are equally heinous. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, the thing is, like, QAnon is basically right about one simple premise: is that America is essentially run by like a, a cabal of sex freaks, you know, and freaks are basically violence freaks, all sorts of any kind of freak you can name, drug freaks. Um, and so I got really like, I mean, it's, it's the problem is with QAnon is they're just like, they're just wrong on a lot of stuff uh, on most stuff. Like, uh, for instance, adrenochrome is not, um, doesn't make you feel good. I've done a lot of research on it. Apparently, you cannot shoot uh, the the uh, adrenochrome taken from a young child to 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 de-age yourself. That is apparently not. That is pseudoscience. But uh, I, yeah, I I I, I realize. Like, I mean, I'm not like the most conspiratorially minded guy either. But like, you know, the world has been run by essentially hidden forces for a long time, and the forces aren't hidden in some like in some like Illuminati Masonic thing. Um, you know, they're hidden in these companies. Yeah, they're hidden, you know, in, in like there is, for instance, the deep state thing. You know, QAnon was always going on about the deep state. But to them, the deep state was just like some weird like like six pedophiles who hated Trump. When like there actually is a deep state. It's like the bureaucrats at the CIA, you know, people who work at places, you know, at, at Raytheon and shit like that. And so our our podcast was at first just about being like what the fuck was going on with Epstein. And then through Epstein's like numerous connections – I mean, it's essentially an unlimited supply of material because they're all connected through this guy and then, of course, through each other as well. Would you um, be sympathetic with the idea that there's a certain like level of like conspiracy exploitation going on with what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is with a lot of QAnon stuff is like people just like will read a 4chan post and be like, well, I guess that's real. You know, like... <laughs> I guess uh, I guess Hillary Clinton ate a baby and put the baby's face on her face. I mean, that's a thing they believe called the Frazzle Drip video, which um, a lot of people claim to have seen, but I've seen no evidence of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is like I think I think a lot of that stems from people trying to figure out why the world is the way it is, right? Like, I, I there, there's obviously certain social factors that have contributed to this insane upsurge in conspiratorially minded thinking among people in America. I, and actually all over the world, like QAnon has a huge following in Germany. There's Iran, Iran and like Persian exiles have their own QAnon. Like they're like, it's, it's, it's bizarre because QAnon is like, it's like the Catholic church where there's like split offs and then there's like, you know, a re- reformations and shit like that. It's really, it's really something. So like you'll have people who are trying to incorporate like the Pahlavi dynasty of Iran into QAnon stuff. And then you'll have people who believe that like JFK Jr., for instance, is still alive and is going to be vice president. And so like that's been really fascinating to watch. And with our stuff, it's like we don't really like I, 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 you know, a lot of, obviously a lot of this stuff is, you know, you have to use conjecture sometimes, you know, you don't have, you're never going to get the tell all fucking memoir or like the interview with somebody where, you know, they, they spill all the beans. Um, but we try to stay as like, you know, close to reality and grounded as possible. And I like, you know, I, I, through like, uh, you know, other interests of mine, like I'm really interested in symbolism and I'm really interested in like, 
sort of like this unconscious like effect that a lot of this stuff that a lot of this like these conspiracies i mean these real conspiracies have on people um you know i i i think like i mean not to sound like too much of a whatever but like i, I mean QAnon itself i think was deliberate right like i think that like people i have a feeling that the people behind QAnon who i have a good inkling of i know who who it is i mean they know who literally is posting the QAnon account he's the guy who owns a message board called eight chain his name is um jim watkins but uh i have a feeling that people who are sort of feeding him stuff uh like i think it's like bannon and the kind of guys in that sphere and it was a really successful project i mean it basically created like a fedayeen for fucking trump like people who were willing to die for him um you know and and people who really believed in something because it's like if i think that like millions of children, which is what QAnon people think, are being abducted every year for use in like Democrat like sex parties. I would flip the fuck out and do anything I could do to make those people not stay in power uh, or to get them out of power. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I it, it's it's uh, the, like the way I approach the show is like I'm trying to figure out like the political, social, but also the sort of spiritual angles of a lot of this stuff. Yeah, it's to me, it's fascinating that people. Are so quick to believe it, you know. There's so yeah. there's large swathes of people that are so quick to believe that powerful rich people must have done these evil things. Yeah. Where do you think that that comes from? I think it's for me because I, I've known one kind of Q person. I've known two people who are like Q adjacent, but not full like Q pilled people in in real life. One of them just kind of believes everything he reads, which I really respect. Like, if, like you can show this guy an article about anything as long as it's from like it's, it's from like a website called like Nature Science Life News, he, and he'll believe it. Um, the other guy was just like a big, big Trump guy who kind of just like got swept up in it a little bit and then then really left it behind. Um, but uh, I don't know. I think I think there's a, a variety of factors. I think one is that people don't really understand that people can lie to them. Um, online. And then another is like, I, I, there's like a million factors. I, I shouldn't even go into them, but to answer the actual question is like, I think that people don't understand how so few people have so much stuff and just like such intense power that they were never like granted by any public sort of forum or, or, you know, or, you know, political populace or anything like that. And so like, they're like, well, they must have like made a literal deal with the devil. Do you think that there's this the overall decline in people being able to like really believe in certain kind of spiritual ideas or religious ideas that have really formed the groundwork for Western morality, the, the, like the way that like science has really made it difficult to believe in yeah. like in, in some like pretty simple like creation stories and the like has left this vacuum that people like um, there's just going to be certain people that will believe in what they're told. Like and uh, and, uh, yeah. and and they're not being told enough of like God created the world and created you. Like that's not enough of they're not being told enough of that. They're but, being told more like this kind of QAnon conspiracy stuff. They probably fifty years ago would have been like rabid evangelistic Christians, but today they're yeah. rabid evangelistic QAnons. I like, think I think that that and that's a really important point because from my experience of talking to these people, they're always like, but it makes sense as though like instinctively and intuitively 
it it appeals to them. Yeah, whereas in if you show them, see, like you said, your friend believes everything he reads. The, the guys that I know that are involved in this shit, they don't believe anything they read. But yeah. for some reason, there, there's something about these theories that makes sense in their head. If I show them, you know, 100 journal articles and New York Times articles, whatever, trying to, you know, really top-tier reporters who are trying to find facts in a very difficult story, they just won't believe that. They think everything's a kind of farce. But um, but there's something about this in a very religious kind of way, in a leap of yeah. faith way, that appeals to their emotions. Yeah, so I think there's this, there's this prevailing myth that our times are incredibly nihilistic and nobody, nobody believes in anything, which like is quite easy to point to. But then look at this. Like this is this is a, a new religious in evangelism that is not yeah. at, not at all nihilistic. Like it, it's like it's inspired by wanting to protect. Um, like you said, children, like it's, yeah, it's pr- like a noble cause um, <laughs> who would not want people to be into that idea. So I think it's, it, it, I, I find what you're doing to be fascinating is that this is a really um, contemporary moment of this birth of a new evangelism and this birth of a new kind of religious fervor and like trying to really like in the, in the same way that like 50 years ago you would have been trying to confront people like trying to use um, eugenic, eugenicist ideas to, to, to separate um, like uh, the races or use kind of like these kind of primitive psychology to explain why homosexuals like uh, uh, should be cured of that. Like, like the, now we're talking to people that have the same kind of level of being convinced by something about something that really looks to be frighteningly insane. Well, I think I think you sort of hit the nail on the head with the religious aspect of it. I I I, I think on one hand you're right. Like, it, it is really easy to point out how nihilistic society is and how like nobody believes in anything. But also, I think it's deeper than that. Is that nobody has anything to live or die for, right? Like, there's no cause to take up that will really like inspire people. I mean. That's, I think, a big problem even on the left is like, you know, you get people who are like, get into it for a little while and then like, well, you know, nothing really changes or like maybe we win a victory and then I'm, I'm out because, you know, there's no like stakes. And with QAnon, you sort of create these stakes, but you also create like a spiritual and noble mission, right? Like you're not just like on the internet, you know, goofing around and like looking at crazy articles and believing everyone. You're actually fighting against one of the most evil and unspeakable forces that that has ever been, you know, Uh, something that's literally demonic and satanic to a lot of these people. And like, I understand that. Like, I I think that there is like a real like vacuum of, of anything to believe in. And so I think people have to like, believe in something that that is sort of what I like to think of as fantasy politics, right? Because for the last four years in America, you've seen essentially two kinds of fantasy politics play themselves out. One much more sort of blatant than the other. Uh, on, on the one hand, you have these QAnon people who have this entire political constellation and ecosystem, solar system, whatever kind of system you want to say, um, that they, that is filled with just myth and fantasy. Right, a lot of it, and some of it's true, but accidentally usually. And then you have people who are like, "Well, America is two seconds away from fascism. Russia is going to control us. 
blah, blah, blah. And it's like, they're like, it's, it's people, they're not even tilting at windmills. They're tilting at things that don't even exist, right? Like they're riding around on horseback. I don't know. And like, just, you know, thrusting their lance in the air. And it's like, I think it's a combination of like, just this really fucked up nihilistic society and a combination of like a, this real depolitization, especially here where there's like no actual politics to fight for. And so the only way to like make politics at all something is to be like, well, there's also magic and babies being eaten. <laughs> well, I did want to, there was a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about. Um, w- one was um, why communism? And that ties into what we're talking about as far as like, you know, a cause. Well, it's kind of it's kind of ironic because communism, I guess you can say, in, in like QAnon is is certainly inspires religious devotion in, in in some people, but also in a way is millenarian because it caused it like unlike the, a lot of the QAnon people who have this sort of vaguely apocalyptic way of thinking, like are not unlike sort of like these QAnon people. It's like I believe that like. I want the abolition of the, you know, basically everything as we know it, right? Like all the entire way society is structured, the economic basis of society, then then or the economic, yeah, the economic basis of society, all the superstructure, fucking totally different. Um, and it's it's yeah, I I I I don't know. I mean, to me, communism just makes the most sense. Like it, you know, I I read. Uh, I think really state and revolution is what maybe be like this book by Lenin where he draws on a lot of like what Marx and and and, uh, and Engels said. And it's like, God, like this, this, this makes sense. Like, I don't understand why we live in like this fucked up chaotic world where like power is vested in like very, an, an economic elite who obviously have no, you know, by the nature of their class, no social ties and no, no interest in the public good. Um, when we could, we, you know, things could be, things could be very different. Um, I mean, if someone's got a better idea, I'm all for it, but, but it's the only thing that makes sense to me. And if you were to kind of intervene in the stage of your, um, youthful nihilism into (laughs) heroin and into addiction, and then into kind of the, the, that kind of healthy brace lifestyle, at what point would you have done it? Or you're just happy to have rolled to where you are today? Oh yeah, I'm I, I I'm glad all of it happened because it's 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 at least it wasn't boring, you know. I mean, a lot of people, especially in political circle. I mean, I tell you, fucking growing up in like with around like punk and then like you know punk people who became junkies and then just junkies. It's like I had a very different life than a lot of people I meet now, and it's like I'll tell people stories that are like would be like normal to like tell you guys or like you know like just like people you know, and they'll be like, "What the fuck are you like?" That's awful and i'm like no it's it's fine um and so exactly it's like what are you talking about like this is how everybody i know lives uh who like i i was talking i was telling about my friend who like i was just telling a story the other day like that wasn't even like a a much it was just like i was talking about this guy and i mentioned that he lived in our practice space someone's like what he just lived in your practice space yeah tons of people do that um, and I'm like, that's not like, that's nothing. That's just like something that, that was like an everyday thing that people did. Um, like people did, that's like, that's not even a blip on the radar. That's not even near any kind of radar. Um, and, 
And so it made me realize that like, it's just that growing up like that led to me to have many very different experiences than a lot of people I meet now. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad for them because they weren't boring. Yeah. It's always really scary to think that, you know, we're so self-centered in, and we think, uh, our reality is every reality or yeah. the world kind of that we see, see and experience is just the world. But when you go into these different pockets of subcultures or, you know, uh, when you're hanging around junkies who have a very different reality and you get these different or, or you go to fight a revolution for the Kurdish people, you're suddenly exposed to this great vast mosaic of realities yeah. that people just don't know are happening simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's something I think of a lot is that like I think of like the way the world is structured as like these veins that sort of overlap the world and like sometimes they, you know, branch off and come nowhere close to each other and sort of just run parallel. Like even in the same city, you have, you know, millions of people who are literally on totally different tracks and, and never cross with each other. Um, and I've been lucky to be able to sort of like, you know, my, the veins that I've been in have sort of changed course and I've been, you know, thrust into other ones. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Um, but, uh, you know, at heart, I'm still a rock and roller, but like, it's, a uh, it's, 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 I, I, I realized as I grew older, I thought everybody kind of just did that. They're like, you know, you were like a punk and then, you know, you got in some trouble and blah, blah, blah. But it turns out, no, a lot of people just stay on one track their whole life, which is, you know, it's just fine, but it's just, it's, I, I, I will always be really grateful for having to be able to experience a lot of different uh, things, even if a lot of those things were really awful. <laughs> Brace, you mentioned briefly your interest in like uh, exploring the spiritual side of what QAnon was, and I, I know that you've been uh, delving deep into Carl Jung. So maybe we could close with like a like an insight that you've had from this experience. I think that like I think that the symbols and archetypes that QAnon draws on, as simplistic as they are, are like, and, and the attraction that people feel to those are really important. I think it's really important to look at what people are immediately, like like, like Mamou said, like that they, they, just, they just say it just makes sense without even having to read about it, right? Like somebody can just read like a few QAnon posts and be like, I believe it. And like, there is a certain like magic to that. I think like, not like, you know, no, no one's casting the spell, but it's, it's in practice, essentially identical to the, to, to that. Um, and, and I really, I, I sort of, I have done a lot of try to research why that is, and I don't know. Um, and what those, what those archetypes are that people, I mean, obviously there's sort of like the, sh the shrieking woman of Hillary Clinton, this like evil mastermind and stuff like that. And that's, you know, a classic classic archetype we can all get get behind you know very very entertaining but there's something much deeper there that i like really need to discover because it 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 has this immediate and like overwhelming gravity that that just sucks people in and upends their lives totally and that is like there's such intense power there that like it it's it's worth studying Litmus Media. If anything in this episode triggers distress, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 
Anytime for confidential telephone crisis support.